Before we get into this interview with Kenneth and Patrick, I need to talk about our sponsors, videoblocks.com, because without them, we couldn't afford to put on these podcasts and pay our editors and our server fees and things like that. So I was very pleased when Videoblocks approached me because I use stock all the time, especially when I'm working on documentaries. The number of times we've looked for things to save our butts because we need to finish off a scene or create some kind of cool montage that gets an idea across is crazy how many times we've had to tackle that. And I actually use Videoblocks and they're giving us an offer to give to you, our listeners, called the Triple Bundle. And it's video, audio, and images for the price of $149. That's all the video, audio, and images for the price of $149. What's amazing about this deal is that it keeps you from risking the quality of your project. Let me explain. If you've ever bought stock footage for a documentary or a fiction film or a commercial or whatever, you've seen how expensive it can get. And if you're working on a low-budget project, which I've worked on many times, and I'm sure many of our listeners have, you find yourself trying to find low-cost clips, low-cost audio, and worried about paying additional fees, anything that could bump up your costs. And with this, Audioblocks is just saying, here's a $149 bundle for all our video, audio, and images. It's $149 for everything. That's a lot of stuff. That's 150,000 videos, 100,000 audio clips, and 400,000 images. You're going to get audio video and images that are studio quality stock footage at the cost of $149, all with videoblocks.com. And all you have to do is go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG and you'll get all the stock footage, audio and images you can imagine for just $149. That's videoblocks.com, B-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S.com slash AOTG to save on millions of studio quality stock images, audio and video. So check it out. If you go to videoblocks.com slash AOTG, you're supporting us. And now, back to the show. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Most likely you heard my other intro with Patrick Doyle. If not, realize, I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but realize that this interview, Kenneth Branagh, is really rough because he is on the other side of the world, in a car, driving around, going to set. So it's a little rough, and I apologize for that. If you're not wanting to deal with the roughness, but you still want to hear Patrick Doyle's thoughts on composing, you can go to the other release I did, which is just Patrick Doyle. Of course, thanks to Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. And as I mentioned in the other one, if you didn't hear it, I really want to know, do you want us to start expanding into other areas such as composing, directing, sound, color, things like that, because I'm getting a lot of requests from the studios, from the PR departments, from the actual people themselves, but you guys are the listeners, and if you just want me to focus on editing, then that's what I'll do. The other alternative is I could continue focusing on editing and just do these as bonus episodes. So let me know. You can do it via email, info at AOTG.com, or of course via Twitter, at AOTG Network, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash AOTG network. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Kenneth Branagh and Patrick Doyle talking about their amazing work on not only the composing, but never forget the song that I have a feeling is going to be nominated for an Oscar soon. So I guess to start, Kenneth, you and Patrick met when you started a theater company and 
you gave Patrick the project that sort of led to him deciding to become a composer rather than an actor. So I'm wondering, what did you see in him that made you want to hire him? Well, I mean, the story of, of Patton, who was a, a brilliant performer, adding into what he's kind of, you know, vocationally trained for, yeah, I'm sure Pat can speak to that, but from my point of view, I'm sure passion, absolutely unquestioned uh, passion and application. So when you see talent and then you see somebody apply it with such diligence and creativity, we started together with our film of Henry V, and, you know, in a beautiful way, it was the blind leading the blind. I, you know, I'd never made a film before, so I didn't even really know how you approached a film store. All that I knew about was story and about a response to the material. And although it wasn't as simple as saying, oh, listen to what Pat played and going, right, we're all on, I knew that in the same way as I had strong intuitions about the play and strong intuitions about images for the movie, I was going to need a lot of help. I was nevertheless, and I was blessed to receive it from all sorts of people, some photographers and actors and everything, but I was at least in a position to understand that catch response to that music, whether it was going to lead to a career of a film composer or whatever it was, that I couldn't tell at the time, but what I knew was he'd made a great, big, passionate response to the story of Henry V with music that he composed even before we began, and then followed through, making up for the inexperience that we both shared with incredible application and diligence. As a word, he won the job and he won the right to actually compose the score as I directed the film. Actually, with probably about as much creative freedom as we've ever enjoyed, and we've been very lucky across our career. But, mm-hmm. So for me, it was about just seeing, here's somebody, regardless of experience, because I shared the same sort of uh, position, whose talent and whose commitment to their vision was impressive. You just knew that the talent was there and they would make up for everything else, and so it proved. Now, you both have worked extensively in theatre and film, so both have a lot of commonalities in them, but they're very different mediums. And so I'm wondering, how do you compose or collaborate for one versus the other? I think theatre has changed a great deal in regard to music because music was very often linked from one scene to the next. But in our case, we started to play music during scenes as underscore, which was far more unusual application of music and drama. That's actually much more commonplace. So that was exciting for us, um, an exciting idea of Ken's, and we used it to terrific effect in the, the theatre season at the Garrick. But as Ken said, his phenomenal imagination and conceptual ideas um, set in these adaptations were always a tremendous inspiration to me and accessible and, as he said, full of the same passion. I think Ken is as a wizard of words, really, and absolutely adores the written words. And um, I, I always adored the written words, but his utter joy for them it was, and still is totally infectious. And he creates a wonderful atmosphere to relish his words and to pick up and join in innate musicality too. So uh, music has changed a lot for theatre, I think, and it's much more cinematic in its voice. Would you agree, Ken? I would. I think that when we did a theatre production three, three, four years ago of uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, the score that Pat came up with, played directed by myself and Rob Ashford, and it played at the Manchester Festival and it played at the Army in New York. Macbeth was uh, hugely influenced by cinema. It, it did a very fast-moving fast-paced production of the play for the theatre that was really influenced by 20 years of theatre and Shakespeare uh, production. It was a thrilling, actually, to bring a movie sensibility 
into that particular approach to Macbeth. And I felt like that was saying in terms of the way theatre and film have changed. You know, it's great to be in the theatre and having underscore across certain kinds of speeches. Some people get passionately irritated by it, but really find it to sometimes be a very releasing thing and something that really, without patronising them, guides the audience who can otherwise feel intimidated by Shakespeare. And sometimes musically, you can really give an enormous sense of assurance in terms of tone. And sometimes if people just know, you know, this piece is comic or this piece is somber or this piece is poignant, it's the musical direction that allows them to relax as an audience and then listens to words. So actually, music becomes a sort of gateway to the words and there's kind of saying this sort of relationship between poetry of Shakespeare, often in lots of as well, of course, but the, the notes and musicality of those words, I think, can find a real parallel with actual music and the investigation of that relationship has been really a sort of central bit of our creative partnership across these 30 years. Is how do you do less? How do you release more? Um, and that production, the fact, is a good example because in a way it's quite a spare score, but it's incredibly impactful. And I also thought it showed confidence and maturity from Pat in terms of understanding where less is more. I mean, it's not a rule, it's not a rule, but it was a really punchy, cinematic, economic, direct, emotional, violent kind of score that really felt like it had a, it had a cinematic bed on it. Now, sort of what you were talking about, how much it reveals in the text and vice versa, how much the text reveals in the sound. I'm wondering, Patrick, from a music standpoint, when we get into Murder on the Orient Express, how did you utilize music as a storytelling tool to help reveal character or reveal story in this film? Well, Ken, our initial discussions are great detailed discussions about the screenplay and his concept and how he sees the picture. And... Central to that is Ken's experience as an actor being in the story, the main character, his incredibly concise and informative understanding of their journey throughout the story. And of course, their journey and the characters are crucial. The story is everything, the narrative is everything. And um, the picture he builds of his concept in terms of the design, the look of it, soundscape, all of these things are discussed in great detail before I actually meet the key head of department. But his initial enthused discussion about how he sees the story, um, I find that highly, highly inspirational. Um, I'm almost off and running as I, because it's such a clear image of what he's about to embark on. Um, that's one of the most crucial times. In fact, the most crucial time for me, apart from reading the story, was his first sort of pitch to me that was how he perceived it. I mean, I think it is critical that you have that initial conversation that where you both articulate creative hunches about the story and you talk in quite impressionistic terms, quite sort of painting terms in a way. It's a stream of consciousness that is also trying to create a, a world in which you can experiment at the beginning. You're always guarding as best you can what I referred to earlier, that sort of amazing creative freedom that we, we discovered much later, <laughs> that we had had on Henry V. We, you know, we try to protect. So we do that by getting together early and sort of unspitballing it or just, you know, throwing the paint up against the canvas as it were, you know, but really allowing yourself to not think too much, try and listen to instinct and remember that instinct when you get further down the line when you might be tempted to be additionally clever. You try and listen to those, that first rush of shared impressions. But also, 
I think what is crucial for me and any of the, the HODs on the picture is that there's a, such a wonderful, relaxed atmosphere where you can throw things in knowing that if the paint sticks to the wall, that's great. If it doesn't, then nobody's judging you. Everyone is um, absolutely enthusiastically throwing ideas around. And it's wonderful that I can feel instinctively true, right, as I did on this occasion after these kids' discussions, a conceptual suite of ideas. I feel confident. I can just send these to Ken and he hopes he'll get a feedback from that and that in turn too will feed the artistic ongoing machine and this particular concept ended up being very much part of the score in different ways but that confidence and that relaxed state of creativity that you find yourself in that's what is the most luxurious thing to have in a relationship and I think all the heads of the department have said that no one feels inhibited everyone feels inspired and uh, in that sense you come up with your best work based on many many years of experience in our case and this great word instinct is the only thing we have because no one quite knows how to make the perfect film does that make sense Ken? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a very good thing that I was know how to make the perfect film, but we kind of get to that point, as people say, you, you never finish a film, you abandon it. And you can't abandon it in the, best, in the best possible shape, to quote Shakespeare, with all its imperfections on its head. I want to jump to the song Never Forget. Now, Patrick, you composed the music, and Kenneth, you wrote the words to this. So how did you work together to sort of figure out what this song was going to be and, and how it was going to sound? Well, we've done songs in the past and it's worked different ways, but on this particular one, the theme, which was the theme for the story of the Armstrong family, the, the tragic uh, historical backdrop to the story, which fuels it, which creates the desire for revenge and comes out of this passionate hurt and uh, loss that particularly the character of Mrs. Hubbard feels. And when I heard this, it came quite early in the process that part of it come up with this uh, very, very affecting, very simple, but quite profound feeling melody. I find myself, and I think this is true of this call generally, but it's certainly true of this song, finding quite a instant response to the music that wanted to articulate this very simple human cry of pain and loss and a sort of search for consolation. I was reminded of just, uh, in my own background, Irish working class, and my granny used to sing an old standard Danny voice. She had a brother called Danny passed away. Um, when, she, when she sang it, um, she cried, and we all cried, and, and yet you even understood then that we, it was necessary for her to sing it, it was necessary for her to cry, it was part of acknowledging him, it was part of remembering him, it was part of accepting the loss and kind of moving on. And there's something at the centre of this film about, despite the fact that we see a violent part of this journey, but to some of the characters here, there is a, the, the violence is to do with finding a moment to, to move on. And we felt that by the end, the, the lyric could be, with the song, a sort of emotional closure to the movie, or if you like, even an emotional bridge from the events that end the movie into the question mark over the lives of the people who are involved in the story who have to move on. The picture asks questions about whether revenge is, is ever any good, whether it offers closure or not, or whether these people who are involved with this crime and, and need to heal uh, can in fact move on. It felt like the song was so packed with the simplicity and the need of somehow acknowledging that process, and it all has to reduce itself down to something simple, which is, we miss you, we will never forget you, we feel the loss of you, uh, that you'll get us every day. These very simple, powerful emotions, like I used to hear my granny going through, like I 
here at funerals, like I felt when my own parents passed, etc. There's a need, there's a need for this sort of, in this case, a sort of beautiful teeming, like the Irish do. And we had, again, quite naturally, not that we were trying to get a song or find an article or whatever, quite naturally the answer came in terms of who might sing it, that Michelle Pfeiffer would bring such rawness to the passion that underlies this character of Mrs. Hubbard, not, not with the invitation to come up with some great vocal dazzle, but simply with musical fidelity, experience the song. Let it be, let it be, let it be a happening in character that had that degree of simplicity. Trying to take everything away from it musically, everything away from it lyrically. Simple, 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 which is hard to achieve. And then a simple performance because what it connects to is something so profound and primal about what human beings need to do. When we arrive on this, in this life, and one certain thing we know is that we will leave it. And the people we love will probably leave it before us and that would be painful and we have to cope with it. And one of the ways we try to cope with it, I think, is through and beyond words, i.e. music and what music can do when expressed through simple words. So it was a very powerful response to this beautiful tune and uh, a desire to finish the film, not in the manner of some mystery puzzle, but in the manner of what the story had become, a sort of psychological drama which was you know, unfolding, revealing all sorts of human pain that our audience could respond and react to. And in the same way as the song posits the question of what's going to happen to these people when they leave on that train, it's an invitation for the, for the audience to kind of experience the same kind of possibility of consolation because just like the story we were working on when this, when this movie came up, we were doing Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, at the centre of that story is the loss of a child. And beautiful miracles happen in that play and amazing things are made good. But at the end of the story, the child is still dead. And that pain, that sadness, that weight doesn't go away. And Pat, we explored it in Winter's Tale about how that was expressed musically. And I think there was some sort of natural kind of karmic interest that we kind of had in this, the us to the film anyway, and eventually, you know, poured itself into a certain refinement of it that is, that, that is this song. That's a lot of words to describe how we came to it, but in a way what I'm articulating is we just, again, we just have this great big instinct that there was something emotional and important that needed to come out at the end, and I think Pat did a great job of it, and I think Michelle did a great job of the performance. I'm proud of the way it turned out. You can sense the time element of eventually um, the sheer amount of time that we spend on the picture culminating in a song, a very simplistic and direct as possible. It took a long time to get to that place. We lived and experienced the entire process for over a year and a half or so. Um, so when the song arrives, it's infused with all that experience and all of these discussions and who we choose to sing it, why they're there, and why they're singing it, this cathartic moment. And it's really all that depth of experience and understanding of it emerges in something that's direct and as tries to tell that story as simply as direct as possible. In the film, I loved that there's sort of this philosophical question of is it ever good to do murder or is it ever right to do murder and when does it happen and there's a song with the cue named justice and i'm wondering if that has any relationship to the never forget song because it has a lot of similarities oh totally it's absolutely utterly came from that contains the armstrong theme this 
piano motif. It's that childlike, almost like a child's little music box, haunting and deeply heartfelt string chord progressions. That, in fact, uh, the song totally emerges organically from that thematic material. And I think that genuine authenticity in a song that comes from the heart, literally from the heart of the story in a heartfelt way. Um, but in the best possible way, it's not a technical exercise, it's a totally natural evolution of a theme in a, the film in this case, but it actually totally could be in the form of the song, it's all in the song, and this counter melody on the cello that's played, which in Canada a low instrument indeed as I do, that too creates part of the melody against this piano theme, so it is very much organically linked to that piece, the very piece we mentioned, which is really the cathartic moment in terms of the drama that unfolds. I just wanted to add one thing. I think you've made an interesting connection. I'm trying to answer it because you've had to agree to that. The, um, you also, justice sits next to the idea of innocence. And there's something about what I'm talking about in the childlike quality of the tune and the treatment, deceptively, simple, that we have symbol of innocence set against this notion of justice. That therefore, you know, the idea of whether justice must operate in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves, like the child in this sphere. So innocence is, is sort of represented partly by that sort of, you know, kind of music box quality. So I think it's, it's, closely, it's closely linked, I think, thematically and musically. I know you guys have a tight schedule, so I have one last question, and I ask this of everyone I interview, and that is, what is your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, God. My favorite guilty pleasure film would be Elf. Um, Carl in Elf, which makes me laugh, laugh until I cry. Oh, my wife and I watched it last night, again. <laughs> oh, I, I don't really know. I don't answer that one. I've never thought about it, my guilty pleasure. I enjoy watching... And it's a wonderful life. Kept on TV. I can't. I, I can't not watch it. I watch it again. It's just. I, I don't know if that's, that's a guilty thing. It's just a iconic picture. Uh, I can't ask you guys. Well, that's, I think that's a great film. So we can we can add that to our guilty pleasure list. <laughs> well, thank you guys for allowing me to interview and taking the time out of your busy schedules. No, thanks a lot. That was my interview with Kenneth Patrick. This episode could not have been done without the help of some amazing people. If you're not aware, I don't compose. <laughs> and in fact, the closest I've composed was I was in a couple punk bands when I was younger. So really, I don't think that makes me up to standard with Patrick. So I had to reach out to some amazing people to help. I reached out to various composers that I know, uh, various editors, what have you. So I need to thank Pac Wee and Will Moskal for giving me amazing questions to ask these guys. And of course, I need to thank Dan Williamson, although he didn't give us any questions when Lauren and I messaged him, he just made us laugh. And of course, Carly McKeating for cutting this episode and the other version of this episode, because it was a lot of work. And of course, Steve Monroe, one of the best sound designers in the world, <laughs> taking a look at this and informing me that, yeah, it's not getting any cleaner than this. Thank you so much for all your help. This could not have been done without you guys. With all that said, if you want to get in touch with us, info at AOTG.com or, of course, on Twitter at AOTG Network. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.